How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very fine. Thank you. Thank you for filling the survey as well. Most endometriosis sufferers are going through the same thing, long, like very long diagnostic times. Um, and it takes most of us 10 to 15 years. And um, once I got diagnosed, I just really was interested in raising awareness about the disease and really bringing change in whatever little way that I can. And um, yes, and um, it's really great to see go online because things i believe things are a lot easier well online and the internet and you know social media has made things a lot easier than it probably used to be when nancy peterson you know started advocating i don't know you i'm sure you know nancy peterson yeah okay so um so that's kind of how it has been for me i started the journey trying to work on my nutrition my pelvic health while waiting to see the doctors and i'm still in that process but i've learned too much and i've met lots of amazing people and i just keep talking about it because i know that you know the more people hear about it the more they understand the disease and the more you know we know that it's not just a bad period so that's kind of yeah what i've been working on I'm also working on a project which has to do with basically figuring out what an integrative solution for endometriosis would look like. And before I can do that, I try to, I'm trying to understand the problems of endometriosis sufferers, which a lot of them are putting out there. But another thing that I believe is not being, people probably don't understand are the challenges that healthcare professionals are experiencing in regards to the disease. This survey is one of the things I'm looking at to understand a bit more, figuring out what we need to do. And then, you know, speaking to you as well, I thought it would be great to actually have you on the show, um, you know, talk about what you're doing. And I know you're not just working with endometriosis sufferers, but because my audience is um, mainly endometriosis patients, that's why it seems like it's kind of all about that. Um, but feel free to talk more in the course of the interview. Feel free to talk about, you know, any other, um, if you want to talk about your different kinds of patients or whatever, that's fine as well, because I'm sure that some other people who don't have endometriosis but have pelvic pain and chronic pelvic pain would be interested in, you know, hearing what you do and finding out how you can help them as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, so I see both men and women, so that's kind of the only big uh difference um, okay. people are like shocked about um because men also experience pelvic pain but they don't experience endometriosis pelvic pain yeah uh, unless they're trans um and I, i've actually seen that too um so you know it's not uncommon especially mm-hmm. when um i guess you would say she is transitioning when they they all of the hormones so yeah. They get a lot of pain from the transition. Yeah. Um, but male males, like the ones that um, that actual males, yeah, actual male parts, um, they don't they experience they don't experience the same type of pelvic pain. Because mm-hmm. my endometriosis patients have a special part in my heart because they have a systemic condition. It's not yeah. um, anxiety driven. It's not pelvic floor disp- just pelvic floor dysfunction. It's not necessarily a hip injury or a fall on the tailbone or um spinning or biking that kind of injuries from that it's 
you know, or postpartum. I mean, everyone's important, but endometriosis is a full body systemic condition that affects the entire body. So it's not just pelvic floor dysfunction. Yeah. Um, so part of the chat, one of the major challenges is diagnosis. Um, but for me, I'm you, because I understand clinically the symptomology that is not just, I'm a physiatrist by training. Mm -hmm. I treat muscles, joints, nerves of the pelvis. Right. And when a woman comes into me, um, I, the first question I ask every single female patient is, so how are you doing? All right, we sit down. So let's start from the beginning. When was your first period? And they're like, wait, I came here for postpartum pregnancy, but I still go through when was your first period? How was it? Was it painful? Um, because I don't want to have to go like do this whole thing and then go back and say, how was your period? Was mm. this endometriosis? endometriosis is one of, it's always on the top of my mind. Yes. So is it all like, I don't bother, like what is, what brought you here for the pain? I always ask it cause I don't want to miss endometriosis. Mm. Um, so it's the first thing I always ask about periods. And then sometimes they're like, no, I have totally normal periods. They're totally regular. And I still think endometriosis because what if it's silent endo? Yeah. Um, and so the big challenge is, is that not everyone's thinking of it. Is it endo? And it's like proven, proven endo until it's not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I always think it's endo until it's not. And then I'm like, okay, you don't have endo. Um, maybe I'll just treat you like pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, but a lot of doctors aren't doing that. Right. Because yeah they don't know about endometriosis. So the biggest challenge is, is, you know, getting patients, you know, four or five, and then getting them a, a diagnosis because sometimes women don't want to be told they have endometriosis. They want to know they have endometriosis. That's really interesting because I have never actually thought of that, that women don't want to be diagnosed. We all know that deep down, you don't want to be told that you've got a chronic disease but the way the community it's like everyone is like oh i just want to know so now hearing your perspective and knowing and knowing that this is exactly what i want to do and what i want to know and what i want to raise awareness about that actually some sufferers are also trying their hardest not to be diagnosed with you know endometriosis but there are sometimes i'll be treating a woman and she comes in for urinary symptoms and in the back of my head, oh yeah, I have some painful periods, but my, my periods aren't bothering me right now. It's really, I'm on the pill, it's not so bad. It's just this urgency or bladder pain. And I'm like, but you're not understanding that it could be related. Yeah. Like, I don't want to, I'm not going into my periods. I'm not having surgery. I don't want to diagnose this. I, I'm on the pill. I'm not coming off of it. I'm totally fine. I have some pain with sex. I have some urinary symptoms. My periods aren't that bad, and they don't want to know. They don't. Oh. I mean, and I know it's hard to it's hard to believe because you're like, why would I go through a surgery? And so, a lot of times, when especially like in their forties or late forties or early fifties, I see some women mm -hmm. like, I am so close to menopause. I'm not doing a diagnosis for. I don't need the surgery mm. to diagnose endometriosis. A lot of them, they they're meeting me in their late forties. They don't, they're like, maybe if I had met you like 20 years ago mm -hmm. and had some pain with sex, I would have, I would have done something and I would have gone searching for why I'm having pain with sex. But I thought it was normal for 20 years. 
Yeah. Now they're like, I don't, I'm okay with this. And Mm. you'd be surprised how many women I see like this. Like, it's not just like one or two. Wow. It's in a month. I sometimes see like women who are like, maybe like five or six women a month with like, who are late, you know, late in their life. Mm -hmm. And now I'm thinking endo. Um, Like I have lots of women who are like, well, you know, I'm just going to try Orlista because I'm like 49. I'm 49. I don't want to have surgery now. Or they have some other comorbidities. So the surgery mm-hmm. wouldn't be like an easy surgery. Maybe mm. they have high blood pressure or they have hypertension, like like um like heart issues or yeah. um or they're like I have some patients who've had strokes and they're like, I'm not gonna have a surgery to diagnose why I'm having this bladder pain or this bowel issue. Mm. Um or you know, or some of them are like, Yeah, I was infertile, I never had children, um and it they don't they don't put it together and they don't want to wow um so how do you deal with that then how do you deal with those kinds of patients who yeah and it's not like i i it's hard because i get it it's not easy like being told that you could have something that's like systemic and then you have to live with it and and then and then some of them have children and they're like wait so you mean my daughters could have this now and it's a big thing. It's a big, you know, I've actually had, I remember there was like one review someone had written about because I was like, I think you have endo. And the person didn't want to believe it and thought that I was like pushing it on them too much. Wow. And so you have to like, I have to have a balance. Like I can't force people to find out if they have endo or not. Yeah. They really have to want to know what's going on. Um, and it's not common. A lot of people are very, like, very appreciative mm-hmm. and very validated when I tell them that they could have something called endometriosis. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of them, like, see women in, like, their 15, 16, or teenage years yeah. who are now being diagnosed with endometriosis. Like, that's early. Yeah, you that's know, early. They've only had their period for, like, three years, and they're coming in with their parents. And, um, and I'm like, you know, I think you could have endometriosis. And they are so validated and they're like empowered and they're learning and they feel ad- they want to advocate and, and create awareness. And so it's not common, but there are both scenarios. Yeah. Okay. So for those that, let's talk about those that don't want to be diagnosed and don't want to go through surgery. Are there, because now I believe that you can also find out if you've got endometriosis, especially if it's deep infiltrating through ultrasound scan or MRI even. So do, do you Some don't even want to do that? They don't even want that. Really? No. Because, oh, wow. Because sometimes, um, well, you know, it's not, yeah, I, I can sometimes get them to the consult, but then when they get to the consult, the surgeon's like, well, you know, you probably have endo because I see some adeno and they're like, well, I'm not going to remove my uterus. I'm good. And that's it. That's where, that's where some of them, I can't even get them to a consult. Wow. Interesting. So they just want to continue living, living with the pain or do you basically try to tell them, okay, this, these are the things you can do in that case to help, or how do you do go forward with that then? So a lot of the symptoms that they have are either presenting with like bowel, bladder, bloating, 
um, pain with sex. So what I do as a physiatrist is I try to help those quality of life symptoms. So treating their pelvic floor, um, giving them some pain options that are non-opiate, opiate, um, getting them into pelvic physical therapy, you know, either having them talking to them about SIBO, the possibility of having small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and being treated for that. Um, you know, so there are still a few things that we can do just to improve the bowel. And like, if they're super constipated, talking about, you know, bowels and talking about magnesium and different supplements they can take to improve it, talking to them about diet. If I'm thinking, you know, a lot of the urinary symptoms are some medications that we can use for decreasing the inflammation. Um, if we might think, let's try some overactive bladder medications, you know, it really depends on like the person and what their main symptom is and what they want to treat. We have um, concomitant vulvodynia, so a lot of women do because they've been clenching pelvic floor muscles for 20, 30 years. Their muscles are super tight, pain with sags, talking to them about entrance type pain or there's new, not like, like there's the ONAT, the, the product that yeah. yeah with pain with sex and talking to them about dilators, you know, obviously if they mm -hmm. haven't had endometriosis excision surgery, it could make things worse. So I don't like to do that, but some women are reaching out to me on social media um, because they have no access to physicians. Um, so I de I've done like webinars where I can give them links and say, you know, watch this webinar. You know, it's probably the best thing you can get to having a full consultation. Right. Okay. So you mentioned that if you've not had um, excision surgery, some of those things can make you worse. Well, if there's tissues and implant, you know, it, you don't know where it is. And so... Yeah. You don't want to be pressing on any of those tissues um and it's just i mean it, assuming you've had an excision you know the chances of it not being there is better so sometimes when women who've already had excision surgeries and they still have entrance type pain i'll talk to them about dilators to to stretch the entrance okay. um but like wands and stuff if you put a wand in there and you've never had an excision you might be pressing on some areas that can actually hurt and okay. you don't know if it's hurting because it's a muscular issue or if it's um, endometriosis. Oh, I see. Okay. So there's a lot of talk and like awareness and knowledge about the integrative approach because I can see like lots of before the, um, I say before, but like a couple of years ago when I started, you know, looking into endometriosis, most of my own doctors, like actual um, Western doctors were not talking about, you know, food or nutrition or things like that. Like there was no conviction. Um, but I feel, I sense that there's a bit more, you know, talk about it. So would you say from your experience, like in the last, I don't know, couple of years, are people now aware that a lot of the pain, even if they've got endometriosis, can be almost solved or reduced? Um, by seeing a pelvic therapist or by basically looking at a holistic way of um, approach, basically? Do you think there's, you know, progress in that regard? I think that, you know, someone reached out and commented on my social media about what can, what are you doing for, for people of color or people who can't afford to get treatment? And it made me think, because I was like, what are we doing? And are there a lot of options for people who can't get excision because I'm in New York and I know five excision surgeons and if I had to I would go to one of them and get an excision but I'm lucky like that I have number one access 
financial means and the education to know who to go to. And so many of my patients in New York have had three, two, three ablations and then had an excision. And that's in New York, right? Because we're, we're trusting, we don't know, we're not educated enough on the condition. Um, but so for these women who are not getting surgery, who don't have access, who they're basically, you know, the only thing they have are conservative treatment options like dietary changes, um, acupuncture, you know, physical therapy, um, you know, removing a lot of this, the triggers that, that aggravate them. And they, they do. Um, I'm not going to say that, you know, when people come to me, they're usually in a lot of pain. So I can't say that a lot of people are completely fine without surgery, but there are definitely women who have no surgery and have an improvement in pain, um, whether it's with allopathic medications, um, whether it's just with dietary changes, but, you know, usually it's a lot. Um, back to what you were asking, are there a lot of doctors now doing that? You know, I want to say yes, but unfortunately not all of the endosurgeons are recommending physical therapy. There are a lot that do, but there are a lot that don't. Um, they, they, I think there's a little hesitancy that, you know, after the surgery, getting internal work can aggravate them when they're doing physical therapy. Um, but, you know, I don't, and I, this is not, this is not giving an excuse to them, but there's just not a lot of time as a surgeon to talk about diet and to talk about, you know, activities that ag and exercises that can aggravate them. Um, whereas I don't operate, I have a lot of that time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not prescribing hormones. I'm not a GYN. So I have that, the ability and the time to sit and talk for an hour about what you're eating, what are you doing for exercise, when you're in a flare, when you're out of a flare, how can we um, modify your activities um, so that you can do things or what will make things worse. And, you know, I think, I think in the world where doctors had a lot of time, they would do all of that. But mm -hmm. thankfully as a physiatrist, I only went into this field knowing I was never going to operate, knowing I wasn't going to do hormonal treatment. Um, so I, I can, I, I mean, with all of my patients, I do this, whether they have endometriosis or not. Wow. Enlightening <laughs> you have been. Um, so no, I think it's really clear what the challenge is. I just wanted to say, I think the expectation for a lot of patients to have the same treatment, so the same care from their surgeon as from their primary care doctor or rehab doctor is like, it's like expecting like, it's done, it's unreal. It's not, I want to say not unrealistic, but sometimes it's a little bit hard because to expect like your surgeon to spend the amount of time on diet, then they, they would, they're just going to refer you to a nutritionist. It's just not realistic. There's a, everybody has a specialty for a reason. Very true. If you can't find what you want from that surgeon, well, that surgeon only kind of went into it to spend a lot of time mm -hmm. cutting and doing surgery. Yeah. Not, not talking about muscles and joints and bones and things like that. You know, yeah. and you wouldn't want your, 
teeth extracted by your, you know, chiropractor, you know, yeah, you know, I see what you mean. But yeah. Yes, because actually, many of us say, Oh, I had excision surgery or whatever kind of surgery. I woke up the next morning or, you know, when I came out of surgery, I didn't even see the doctor or he saw me when I was still coming out of it, said a few things I don't even remember. And now I'm just waiting for my consultation, which is like two weeks or two months in the future. And we're all like, oh, it's not fair. This is frustrating. They don't care. But actually, listening to what you're saying, it's almost impossible, which is why for me, the integrative approach is very, very important because what you just said perfectly, you are not going to do what the surgeon is doing. And the surgeon is unable to talk about nutrition. He doesn't even like have the time. He comes in for his surgery. He does what he has to do and he's on to the next. Right. And I'm not saying that it's, you know, I think every surgeon should visit the patient postoperatively should see seeing them and usually here we i don't know i know in the uk it's a little bit harder but here if you go to someone usually get a, a follow-up visit within a, a week i'm not you know and then sometimes at five weeks or six weeks but i see patients like six weeks post like usually if one of my patients has endosurgery i say come back at five to six weeks and then we'll talk and we'll see where we're, where we're at and i'll manage their post-op care right so I'm managing what medications are going to go back on what you know, what creams I can give them for any pain, mm. what suppositories I can give them for pain, what oral medications I can give them for the nerve um, inflammation, what, when they are going to start their physical therapy again, I'm giving them the prescription for that. It's, it's a little bit different in the U.S. because a surgeon is not going to write out a prescription for physical therapy. Mm. It's, usually it's not going to happen. I mean, in some states, Patients can go on their own directly to the physical therapist themselves. In some states, after a month, sometimes they need a note, uh, like a prescription from a doctor. So it's not that I'm saying it's fair. I'm, I definitely don't, but it's just a little, like that when that patient is not with you in the morning when you wake up, he's usually with another patient, like mm -hmm. on to the next patient. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? I know, I know, I understand. Yeah. So I guess maybe more communication or understanding by the patients about how it all works, or you know, just I think people just patients look up to doctors a lot, like they're the person of authority and they know it all, even if no one does. But um, so I think that's they're just they just usually feel a bit let down, um, like by everything. But this is hearing this makes it clearer, and I believe that I think if doctors capped mm -hmm. their patient population and they capped it, and they said, "Okay, I'm only going to take ten new patients for the month. I'm not going to take thirty. Less patients would get treated, but maybe they would get more time with those patients." Yeah, so it's maybe kind of a trade-off. It's a catch-22 because yeah. you won't be able to get into the doctor because you'll say, well, I won't have proper time for you. Yeah. And that's why so many excision specialists and pelvic doctors go out of network where if you, if you were in an, you know, an academic center in the U.S., you have to see 30, 40 patients a day. And that's just like not enough time. I would be able to be like, so when was your first period? 13? Was it hurt? Okay. You have endometriosis. Yeah. <laughs> That's just not going to happen. Yeah, so true. Okay, so do you think technology can make a difference? What are your thoughts on how it can possibly? Technology is going to. I mean, look at us. We're sitting here in the UK and we're here talking about endometriosis. Yep. <laughs> technology is the only way we're going to make it better. 
I think social media has done a huge impact on the diagnosis time on, I mean, I, 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 like the other day, someone reached out and said, my daughter has endometriosis and I don't want to put her on the pill. And I was like, listen, I can't talk to you on social media, but I can call, I can call you and we can talk on the phone for a few minutes. Mm. And I barely even let her speak. I was just started telling her, I was like, listen, my, if it was my daughter and she was having pain and she was like missing school for three or four days a week, I would start with something. I don't want her to have surgery right away. She's mm. just, you know, 17 years old. I would put her on birth control. Um, I would see if any of them helped. But I would be hell yeah aware of endometriosis and make sure that if it's time to have surgery and she is progressively getting worse and not improving by any of these birth controls, endometriosis excision. I would be researching the heck out of endometriosis excision surgeons. Yeah. I would be looking. I would. I, and I told her these medications that put your put your daughter into menopause are very different than just birth control because a lot of people don't understand the difference know that Orlis and Lupron are different than you know, like, yeah. um, you know, low estrin or a marina or, you know, they don't know that. And, and being aware of your contraception, I mean, your birth control hormonal options is really important. And, and also just like taking away all those taboos that there's something wrong with putting a 17 year old on birth control. They're, they're not going to go out there and start having sex most of the women with endo who are in their teens are terrified of sex. Yeah. They're terrified. They can't get a tampon and they don't want to have sex. And so a lot of like the whole like, oh, if I put her on birth control, will she start having sex? <laughs> like that taboo like drives me insane. Um, and so I think just these conversations have to be had and people need to hear it. Like, yeah, I yeah. think even just us talking about this, yeah. one person is going to hear this and be like, oh, maybe I should put my daughter on. Like, yeah. allow, allow it. Yeah. Um, so many people who, like, literally were not allowed to be, patients were not allowed to be put on birth control in their whole 20s. Mm-hmm. And we're told, you know, I think your daughter has endometriosis when she was in their 20s. Maybe you should put her on birth control. And then when they get to their 30s, doctors are like, well, I think she has endo. And the mothers are like, yeah, I know. I just didn't allow birth control. Wow. I guess it's it's tough because I think the issue of birth control, I don't even know how I feel as well, but not because of the taboos, <laughs> not that, but just because that's the thing there's a lot of information out there and some of it is like, you know, birth control changes, you know, your home your your body and sometimes you have long-term effects from birth control um i believe that lupron and Arlis are there are a whole nother ball game that's completely different and that is that terrifies me a lot more but even with birth control i didn't like i knew the options and i think I knew that there were different options, but it was just scary because it feels like, you know, lots of people said all sorts of things. You read all sorts of things about, you know, if you go on birth control, when you're now finally ready to have a child, you might not be able to because your body would um, struggle to come off, you know, your hormones might not come together properly or, you know, all sorts of things. So I feel like that's one of the reasons why many people are so terrified and they don't want their you know, kids or, you know, themselves as well to go on birth control, I think. But so a lot of it is, is our myth. 
like even something like, oh, I'm not going to be able to get pregnant after. That's a myth. That's not, you know, lots of women get pregnant. And that's, I think, the important thing about having accurate information out there. Yeah. Um, And a lot of GYNs are now joining TikTok and educating young girls because that's where our girls are on TikTok. Yeah. They're all on TikTok. So they have to hear things like, um, you know, the myths of, of birth control. Mm. Um, I forgot what I was going to say, but I was going to say something. But, you know, realistically, we need to know truths. We can't, we can't yeah. be getting medica- our information from just random blogs. <laughs> no, blogs yeah. and Reddit and, you know, different yeah. places. We have to yeah. be coming from doctors that are reading evidence or, or reading evidence-based information and yeah. sharing evidence-based information because, yeah. you know, and because why, and I wrote an article for a um, Brown girl magazine and I, and the article was something like the quote was like, are Brown or Asian South Asian women causing infertility by accident? Because when you don't talk to your kids about endometriosis and then the endometriosis now affects your egg quality. Yeah. You're actually doing yourself a disservice by not being on birth control sometimes because now the endometriosis grows more rampantly and now it can get more, it can affect your egg quality more and now cause infertility, you know, and you're thinking you're doing this amazing thing by staying off the birth control and really depends on how aggressive endometriosis is. Yeah. If you're, if you're not having infiltrative endometriosis, it's probably fine. And if you have silent endometriosis, it could be okay. But without knowing how aggressive your endo is, you have no idea. Um, and so I do talk about fertility a lot. Okay. My, another thing I talk about at my um, initial visit, because I see women in their 30s and 40s who now can't have kids. And, and I see women who are in their 20s and they're like, why are we talking about babies right now? I don't want a baby. Yeah, and, but I know what it's like when you're in your 40s and you don't have a partner, and now you're rushed into having a hysterectomy because you have adenomyosis. Yeah, yeah. So, quick one about um, Arlisa and Lupron. I'd like to know your thoughts on them and how you advise your patients about it. Um, if they've never had an excision surgery, I don't, I don't recommend going on Arlisa or Lupron. Um, I'm not a gynecologist but I know that there are a lot of side effects that go along with these medications. Um, and I, I've spoken to some endosurgeons who feel there is a place for them, yeah. but it really depends on the scenario. Okay. Um, but if they've never had a proper excision surgery and they can afford one um, and they have the means to get access to an excision surgery, that's always number one. Um, and many of my patients are on birth control, but not many of them are on Orlissa or Lupron. Okay. Mostly because of the side effects. Some of them have come to me on Orlissa and Lupron. Um, but yeah, if they come on Lupron or Orlissa, you know, obviously there's nothing I can do. I'm meeting them yeah. for the first time. And yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, but I don't re- necessarily recommend it. And I do talk to them about the side effects before they go that way. 
Um, many, many, many patients will tell me, oh, my GYN saying that they're going to drop me if I don't do these because these are the only options or I've already had surgery. So this is my, my last option. So I'm going to do it. I mean, it's, it's a personal decision for some patients and some patients are on it and they feel like it helps help them and their pain is, you know, improved. So I can't, I can't speak for it for them, but. Okay. So let's go back to technology. How do you um, usually work? Do you do online or virtual, you know, consultations and are they helpful if you do? I don't because of legal, um, you know, I have to have a medical license in the state that I see the person. Oh, right. So we have a New York and New Jersey medical license, so I can't. Like we had toyed with the idea of doing international consults because that that doesn't play a role here um, internationally. Okay. Um, but I've been asked like, how long would you need? And I um, I told them I would need a full hour. And I don't know. There's not enough hours in the day to do a full hour consult. If I had you know at least a full hour, but also exam wise, I like to be able to get a sense of what the pelvic floor looks like and how, you know, what I'm feeling. Um, many of my patients just by pelvic floor exam, you can tell the difference a little bit in pelvic floor tightness, hypertonicity between an endometriosis woman mm -hmm. and someone who isn't. Most of my endometriosis patients are much, much tighter than um, someone who's just got vaginismus or, you know, a hip injury. Okay. Um, it's a lot, you know, the spec, I don't do speculum exams. I do it with my, my hand, but they have a history of having pain with speculum exams and pain with tampon insertion. Um, and so I try to, you know, I can kind of gauge that. And so I don't necessarily think it's a bad idea. I think it's a good idea, but, you know, I think the a proper, you know, I know a lot of endosurgeons do phone um, conversations yeah for consults and I think it's yeah I, I can see I can see if they can do it and we could too because just having the conversation you know I think it would benefit people but I think one day I think I think telemedicine is growing in the U.S. a lot so I can okay. see it happening okay do you have um, any final like advice or anything for women going through pain daily and don't know if they have endometriosis, maybe don't want to know and, you know, just struggling really? I tell a lot of my patients to read the book Beating Endo. It was written by Dr. Iris Orbach um, and Amy Stein, who are both colleagues in New York. Um, sometimes if a patient is kind of on the fence of whether they have endo or not, I tell them, read this book. Or I'll, I have a couple of copies in the office and I'll say, take this book, bring it back in your next visit. Yeah. And they're like, oh my God, I was reading this and this totally sound. And I try to let, I, you know, I, 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 I let them sell themselves on it because right. it's hard. I mean, I can't force it down people's throats. Like I think you have endo. I think you have endo. Like if they don't want to hear it. Um, so like good books are great resources. Mm. Um, good podcasts are good resources. If you, you know, if access isn't there, you know, like I said, getting into physical therapy, getting um, good nutrition consults, 
um, you know, diindomethylene is a dietary supplement that um, reduces the estrogen in the body. Taking out foods like soy, um, you know, skipping chemical products that, you know, convert to estrogens, removing those out of your, your lifestyle. Um, improving the blood flow in the pelvis, like yoga, restorative yoga, when you're in pain, like getting into child clothes or happy baby, and, and you know, doing things that improve the endorphins in your body. Um, so if you love running or you love something, you know, doing that will actually make you feel better. And then obviously, if there is any, um, any depression or anxiety that can take you into a chronic pain cycle as well. So working on the things that are in the chronic pain cycle, like muscle spasms and improving the circulation in your body, um, decreasing the central sensitization, which is a phenomenon of chronic pain um, by, you know, meditating and doing yoga or acupuncture um, to decrease that sensitization and kind of reminding your body that there was a time where you weren't in pain and that way your body can get back to that time. Thank you so much.